for the sake of time, I'm going to jump in rather quickly. I'm going to ask you to please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1. And while you do that, I was reminded as Joe spoke of Everett and Alice, I think it was four weeks ago, my apologies, I was supposed to bring you guys greetings from them and specifically from Dan, um, just their personal greetings of saying hi to you guys and how grateful they are. Um, so as Joe shared, it remembered that, I'm sorry it's taken four weeks. Um, as we look at Luke chapter one, I want to bring to you a message this morning that I have called Announcing a Savior, the Psalm of Zechariah. And I do want to read all the verses of the entire passage, 25 verses, and recognizing that that is a bit longer. It's understandable if some of you are not wanting to stand. But those of you who are willing, I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. So Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 56. And Mary stayed with her, Elizabeth, about three months, and then returned to her home. Now the time was fulfilled for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had magnified his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zechariah after the name of his father. But his mother answered and said, No, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. And they were making signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. And they all marveled. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak, blessing God. And fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in the, all of the hill country of Judea. And all who heard these things put them in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was indeed with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, verse 68, Blessed be the God, Lord God of Israel, for he visited and accomplished redemption for his people, and he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to make ready his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to direct our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit and he lived in the desolate regions until the day of his public appearance to Israel. You may be seated. 
<clears throat> During an interview, John Lennon, the same John Lennon of Beatles fame, said that he understood Jesus and was okay with him. But it was the disciples that ruined God's story for him. They were very ordinary. There was nothing extraordinary in the disciples. And so John Lennon believed that God would use such ordinary means and ordinary men to accomplish an extraordinary plan made the gospel unbelievable to him. John Lennon obviously missed a very beautiful aspect of the Lord's work. The beauty of it is that God doesn't require people to be exceptional. He doesn't require of them exceptional wealth or exceptional class or exceptional status or exceptional knowledge in order to accomplish his will. They need not be of exceptional means to accept the gospel. The only exceptional quality that one needs to have in order to receive the work of God and to participate in the work of God is to be an exceptional sinner, a quality that all people have. Thankfully, the Lord does not operate the way John Lennon thinks he should. Because by that reasoning, God would only be faithful to those who are exceptional, to those who have proven themselves worthy of God's faithfulness. But God is faithful even when people are not. He makes no distinction between people, except between those who are saved by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and those who are not. This morning, we read the story of, the birth of John the Baptist, and then we just read the birth of John the Baptist. So we began in our scripture reading the announcement of his birth from the angel Gabriel to Zechariah, and now we read of that actual arrival of when John is born. And this is the story we see, and in it we see God is faithful. By the birth of John, we see God's faithfulness to an individual, to a family, and to a nation. And by it, we learn that God is always faithful, and the faithfulness of God generates the faithfulness of God's people. From the outset of this passage, we see that truth expressed in verse, beginning in verse 56, where we just read, Mary remained with Elizabeth for about three months and returned to her home. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And the neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise a child, and they would, would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And so they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And so he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all marveled. It is here that the Gabriel's announcements in the verses 5 through 25 are, are now in the process of being fulfilled. And by it again, the Lord's faithfulness is revealed. God has made a promise to Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth will bear him a son. And so the Lord dispatches the angel Gabriel to declare that promise to Zechariah. And now that promise is coming to fruition. Mary had come for a visit with Elizabeth when Elizabeth was six months pregnant. 
And she stayed about three months, we're told. But has departed, apparently before Elizabeth has given birth. But there are others there. And they have seen what has taken place and, and seen that the Lord has magnified his mercy to Elizabeth. By fulfilling his promise, the Lord has shown himself to be faithful. And the people responded, rejoicing with her, it says in verse 58. At that initial announcement, Gabriel told Zechariah, that's exactly what would happen. He said in verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. And that's what they did. The people not only responded to God's faithfulness, but so does Zechariah. And so what I want you to note first is Zechariah's submission. Zechariah's submission. On the eighth day following John's birth, Zechariah and Elizabeth obediently, they fulfill the law found in Leviticus 12.3. This says, on the eighth day, the flesh of the foreskin shall be circumcised. That's in accordance with the covenant of God established with Abraham. Abraham himself fulfilled circumcision. Genesis 17 says, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those brought in with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. For roughly 2,000 years, from Abraham to now Zechariah and Elizabeth, this practice has continued. All the way from then to Luke chapter 1. And so as faithful Jews, Zechariah and Elizabeth obey the Lord's instructions established so long ago. And on the eighth day, they bring John to be circumcised. It's at this point that they also begin or choose to name him. Generally, when we look at the Old Testament, we see that the naming takes place at birth. And they live under Roman rule, and that seems to be the, even the culture of the Romans at that time, to name a child at birth. But it's not without precedent to apply a child's name at circumcision. Jewish tradition holds that Moses changed his name at circumcision. And of course, we have Abraham, who changed his name from Abram at circumcision in Genesis 17. And so now it comes time for them to name their child. And the people set forth to name him Zechariah. Why would they do that? The text tells us. Because the tradition was to name the child after someone in the family. Specifically, generally, it was the father or the grandfather. But Elizabeth intervenes and she says, no, his name will be John. Zachariah has been using a tablet, usually one that has some wax on it that he can write on. And he uses that tablet to communicate here in our text, but he's probably been communicating with that tablet the whole time since he was struck mute. And so he's probably already told Elizabeth what has taken place with his encounter with Gabriel. But Elizabeth's response surprises the people. And so they turn to Zachariah, and no doubt they think he will set her straight. But all he does is just reaffirm what she had already said. When bringing the Lord's message to Zechariah, Gabriel tells him in verse 13, you will call him John. And now 
by his response to the people in verse 63, by naming his child John, Zechariah has submitted to the Lord's will. Zechariah then places himself under the Lord's leadership. Notice what he said, though. His name is John. Not that his name will be John, but his name is John. Just because that formal naming all is occurring now doesn't mean that they haven't already determined the name from a while ago. As an example, though the due date is months away, Bethany and I have already named our daughter. So even before this point, Zachariah has already established and already purposed in his heart that he is going to obey the Lord, that he's going to submit to this plan. This is fascinating because Zachariah is a priest. By his example, the people should understand submission to the Lord. And by his words, they should already know about the Lord's faithfulness. But even as a priest, Zechariah doubted. That's why he was disciplined in verses 5 through 25. But here he submits himself even more to the Lord's will. And notice what he does. In order to obey the Lord, he violates the traditions of men. Though tradition says a child should be named after a family member, Zechariah goes against it to follow the Lord because there is no law in God's word to say that it had to be done that way. If tradition causes someone to disobey God, then that's an idol. And that tradition has to change, not God's law. The Lord has made a promise to Zechariah. And upon bringing it to fruition, to completion, God has proven himself faithful. And to God's faithfulness, Zechariah responds with his own faithfulness. He responds in submission. I want you to note second, though, Zechariah's speech. Zechariah's speech. At Zechariah's submission, all of a sudden his tongue is loosed. But not just his tongue. Did you catch that Zechariah is not only unable to speak, but apparently he is also unable to hear as well? Verse 62 says that in order to get John's attention and explain what is going on, they had to make signs and gestures to him. They couldn't just call out his name. They actually had to get his attention somehow. If he could hear and he had heard what has taken place, there would be no need for the people to be astounded when he confirmed Elizabeth's desire to name the child God, John. Because if he had heard what Elizabeth had said, it wouldn't have been that big of a deal. Oh, he heard Elizabeth say that, so therefore he's just confirming. But it's submitting to the Lord by calling their child John. His speech and his hearing seem to be restored. And from that event placed before us is both Zechariah's response and from that the people respond. Verses 64 to 66, they read, And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. We may have expected that God would remove the punishment, the, the deafness and the muteness, 
at the birth of John, but instead the Lord waits until now. And in the process, we see not only Zachariah's faithfulness, but then God is glorified even more. And now Zachariah can speak. And his first words are to praise the Lord, which then inspires the people to praise him as well. There's no bitterness in Zechariah. He maintains no anger towards the Lord for the severity of the punishment that was meted out to him. Instead, Zechariah just responds as he should, with his heart even more turned towards the Lord in acknowledgement of who God is. He begins to praise the Lord. And at this miraculous event, the opening of his speech, the people respond as well. When Zechariah's mouth is opened, the people recognize it for what it is, that it is a work of God. And the verse says that fear comes on them. The Lord uses that fear to even further bring glory to himself. Because look at what happens in verse 65. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea. That holy fear causes them to recount the work of God. Talking about this child, John, who was born. And they began to share it then with others throughout the whole region. Do you know what this does? It prepares the people for when John starts his ministry in chapter 3. By hearing of the things now, when John finally appears later, they can remember, oh, this was the child spoken of many years ago. God's already at work preparing his plan for John's work at his birth. What we witness is a people under the influence of a holy fear. That is a reverential awe mixed with this searing dread. And with that holy fear, the people unleash this declaration of the great work that God has done. The work of God always results in the fear of God. When God works, it cauterizes the hearts to the way of the world, and it places one in submission to his ways, to God's ways, declaring the glory of God. That's what happened when they crossed the Red Sea. Upon seeing the Egyptians dead by the hand of God, Exodus 14.31 says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then what happens in the next chapter of Exodus, Exodus 15, Moses begins to do the exact same thing that Zechariah does here. He begins to sing a song of praises to the Lord, declaring his glory. As one commentator says, when God pierces the heart, the normal response is fear. The work of God produces a fear of God, and the fear of God leads somebody to declare the glory of God. That's what's taking place here. Notice that it's Zachariah's speech that inspires their speech. And it's, it's not what Zachariah has just said. It's they've marveled that he could speak at all. And yet they still don't completely understand the events taking place. Because then if you look at verse 66, it says, All who heard these things laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? 
for the hand of the Lord was with him. And we point out that by asking what will this child be, the people show that they recognize that indeed the Lord is at work. But they don't have a full grasp of what is taking place. And yet that's what it says. And then it says that despite not having a full grasp, they laid the things up in their hearts. Mark Coleridge writes, the act of storing in the heart implies not only incomprehension, but also an openness to clarification in the future. A preparedness to live with unclarity in the hope that there will come a time when the puzzling signs will disclose their true meaning. So the people may not understand, but they're okay with that. They live with an expectant hope that one day it will be made clear. And so they guard it in their heart until that day when it's made clear, and they continue to walk in faithfulness. How much more should that resonate with us today? The Lord assures us he is always at work. And though we may not understand it, we guard these moments in our hearts, knowing that when he returns, it will be all made clear. And yet in the meantime, we walk in faithfulness, because one day it will be made clear. Now that Zachariah's speech has returned to him, he uses it to the Lord's glory by drawing attention then to the Lord's faithfulness. As any gift with the Lord that should be used for the Lord's glory, Zechariah does just that. He raises his voice to the Lord's glory, for the Lord's glory, through this composition of what I'm calling a psalm. Verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying... And with that, he launches into a song. And so I want you to note third, Zechariah's song. Zechariah's song. When Luke writes, he speaks frequently of being filled with the Spirit of God. But whenever he speaks of being filled with the Spirit of God, we always see in Luke that it results in one who's willing to speak the Word of God. Verse 15, we see this in chapter 1 of Luke already. Verse 15, Gabriel tells Zechariah that John will be great before the Lord, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And for what purpose is John filled with the Holy Spirit? Because he is the very one who's going to go forth and declare the Lord's word. Last week, we saw Mary and Elizabeth meet together, and they share the joy of being pregnant and becoming parents. And what happens? Verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting to Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit. So she's filled with the Holy Spirit. And that filling caused Elizabeth then to do what? To also declare the word of God. It says, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? It was only after being filled with the Spirit that people began to speak in tongues in Acts chapter 2. And then in Acts chapter 4, so still part of Luke's writing, we have this grand speech of Peter as he begins to proclaim the truth of God. But what do you expect to happen first? 
Verse 8 of Acts 4 says, When Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, then said to them, rulers of the people and elders. And then he begins his discourse, recounting all the work that the Lord has done. With the Spirit of God comes the speaking of the truth of God. And so now in verse 67, Zechariah is said to be filled with the Spirit. And from that, we then get this song that follows. Today, this song is referred to as Benedictus, reflecting the Latin translation of the very first word of the first line of the text, meaning blessed. When in verse 64, it says that Zechariah praised the Lord, he blessed God, it was probably these words of this song, the words that we find in verses 68 to 79 that he spoke. And there are three ingredients that make this song possible. The first ingredient is an exalted view of God. Zachariah doubted. We've talked about that. We saw it. Most of us would probably doubt if an angel of the Lord appeared to us. But he's still a man of great faith. And so his heart was placed on the Lord. And it was set on doing the will of the Lord, as we saw by his submission to God's plan earlier. So he had an exalted view of God. He placed God in his heart. The second ingredient is an exalted view of God's word. When we read the psalm that Zechariah has composed here, you should notice that it's very much like the one Mary did, in the sense that it's made up of the scriptures. Zechariah cites or alludes to a whole bunch of Old Testament scriptures. He knows the word of God. Zechariah has lived a life of Psalm 1, which says to delight in the law of the Lord, meditating upon it day and night. And so the, the law of the Lord is, the word of God is inscribed in his mind so that he can now take those words and turn them back into words of praise for all that God has done. And final ingredient is an exalted view of God's work. Zechariah has just experienced a bunch of miracles of God, both the, the tying up and the loosening of his tongue, the course of pregnancy of his wife, and now culminating with the birth of his son. But in verses 68 to 75, we will get there and we'll see that he declares the greatest miracle of all, God's act of salvation. In view is this coming work of God in which the people will be redeemed, including he and his family. Zechariah looks to the Lord for salvation. His soul by salvation is inclined towards the Lord. And out of it, he blesses the Lord. And so these are those three ingredients to make Zechariah's song possible. An exalted view of God, a heart that is inclined towards God, an exalted view of God's word, a mind that is saturated by the word of God, and an exalted view of God's work, a soul that has been redeemed by God. It's the heart, soul, and mind. This song is, this psalm, it's just an expression of Zachariah's heart, soul, and mind. Later on, it hasn't happened yet because Christ hasn't even been born. But Jesus will tell the people to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. But before Jesus says that that is the greatest of the commandments, Zachariah is already doing that. 
And this song is already a, a, an expression of that. It flows out of his heart, soul, and mind. When one's entire being is placed upon the Lord, it results in praise for the Lord. It's as though the work of God produces within somebody this inability to contain the praise of God. And so seeing God's faithfulness causes them to overabound with praise for him. By fulfilling his promise to give him a son, the Lord has proven himself faithful so that the birth of John produces that uncontained praise. Think about us, though. We're one week away from celebrating the birth of Christ, who is greater than John. It's an event of greater magnitude because it fulfills the Lord's covenant, and it will inaugurate God's plan of salvation on all people who believe that Christ's work is sufficient to redeem our lost, our troubled souls from the slavery of sin. And that's an act that merits uncontained praise. Once again, the Lord shows himself faithful. The wondrous works of God deserve the wondrous, works, wondrous praise of God. And with this song, Zechariah exemplifies that. Zechariah's song may be divided into two parts, verses 68 to 75 and verses 76 to 79. And so we start to close our time in God's word this morning by just briefly looking at the composition. And we notice that verses 68 to 75 speak of Zechariah's savior. Zechariah's savior. As we read these verses, Zechariah speaks of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will save the world from their sins, as John will soon declare. Upon reading the words, three facets are made clear. The Savior's plan, the Savior's power, and the Savior's purpose. Zechariah declares in verse 70, He spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from all the hand of all who hate us. This is the Savior's plan. Coming to fruition at this point with the birth of John and Jesus is God's plan of redemption that was declared long ago by the prophets. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the Lord is promised, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And now these promises are coming about, and that's what Zechariah speaks of. Look at our text, our verse in 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Whenever the word says that God visits his people, it speaks to the fact that the Lord is coming either to judge his people or coming to save his people. As evidenced by the word redeemed in our text, the visiting of the Lord here is obviously to save them. 
But to save them from what? Most people wonder, is this political salvation to save people from the government oppression or spiritual salvation to save people from their souls? I think it's speaking of both. The language speaks of of God bringing political salvation. The Lord uses nations and governments to bring about judgment, bring, using leaders. We see this throughout the Old Testament when he uses places like Babylon or, or simply look at the book of Judges and you see that this cycle of leaders oppresses the people. And what happens is the people sin and so God brings them about and places them underneath an oppressor until as judgment and then until they relent and then he returns them or restores them the time in which luke is writing the people are under this roman rule this roman oppression likely is a consequence of not following the lord and we could trace that out in the history because they are living under this no doubt zachariah has in mind political redemption but I would remind you that Zechariah is being controlled by the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit. And so it's not out of line for God to use his Spirit to inspire words that speak of spiritual redemption as well. Again, like the people, perhaps Zechariah doesn't fully understand everything, but it will one day be made clear. But how can the Lord accomplish something so magnificent? How will he accomplish the work of both political and spiritual redemption? By his power. Verse 69 actually tells us, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Politically, the Lord will raise up the rightful heir from the line of David. The one who is legitimately entitled to be king over the people. He is the one who will offer political salvation, but he's also the one who can offer spiritual salvation. This Davidic king was talked about long ago in 1 Samuel 2.10. I want you to listen to these words and notice the similarities from that verse in our text. 1 Samuel 2.10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The Lord's anointed is powerful, powerful enough to break both political and spiritual bondage. His power is expressed in that phrase, horn of salvation. Horns are used in scripture to symbolize strength. It brings to mind the pictures of horned animals like oxen and how they might use their horns to protect themselves or defend themselves. It signifies power, and that's why that phrase is also used in Psalm 18.2 from our call to worship. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, the power of my salvation. Jesus will be the powerful king who brings salvation to the people. The Savior's plan is to bring salvation, and he will do that by his power. But that leaves us then asking for what purpose? 
And we find the answers to that in verses 74 to 75. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And Daryl Bach writes that redemption is a release to a redeemer who frees. He liberates people so that they are free to serve God in righteousness and in holiness. Politically, the people are in bondage to the Roman rulers. And under their authority, it is probably very impossible to serve God fully. But when the Lord liberates them, bringing forth opportunities to more fully serve the Lord... I think of an example of this, and I'm going to apologize for the example because I know it's divisive. But when COVID hit and the government mandated shutdowns, the government influenced our ability to obey the Lord. So whether you agree or disagree, you can't deny that it placed limitations and restrictions. So liberation from government that's being seen here is so that they would be freed to serve the Lord more fully. This is why we are called to pray together in 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you remember back to that when we talked about it in July. But this isn't true just politically, it's true spiritually. All people are enslaved to sin, and so their best works are like filthy rags. In this case, the enemy is not political, the enemy is Satan. But Christ's work on the cross frees from the slavery of sin so that they may be free to serve their Savior again in righteousness and holiness. Remember Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. All people are created to glorify God, but as long as they are entrenched in sin, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, as John would call it, righteous and holy service is impossible. But the Savior's work means that they can save, serve God, and more specifically, that they can serve him without fear, as the verse says. And so while the first part of the psalm speaks of Christ, Zechariah reserves the last part of the song to speak of John, his very own son, which is why I want you to note finally Zechariah's son. Zechariah's son. After speaking of Christ, Zechariah then says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And then we're told, verse 80, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the days of his public appearances to Israel. The Lord blesses Zechariah with a son, but not just for Zechariah's benefit, but also for his own benefit. The son will be the one that announces the Lord's salvation and announces that it has arrived. 
the picture actually described in these verses, 76, 77, 78, and 79, they're a bit discouraging. But they show the need for this event to even occur at all. As a commentator describes it, the need for such ministry is described in bleak terms. People sit in darkness and the shadow of death. These Old Testament images appear to refer to those who are opposed spiritually and physically, like Israel before the Exodus. Psalm 107, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 42, Micah 7, all speak of Israel sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. They refer to people locked up in ignorance on the edge of death. Threatened with rejection, they lack righteousness, do not demonstrate justice, and stand in need of release and forgiveness. The people do not even realize their own need for a savior. They are so steeped in unrighteousness that they declare it righteous. These are the types of people that Paul would describe as having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. But daylight is coming. The sunrise, it says in verse 78. The sun will expose darkness, that is Christ. But John will go before Christ. And he will provide knowledge of the salvation and point people to Christ. Malachi prophesied of this. He said this would happen. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I send my messenger, and John is that messenger. In the next chapter of Malachi, Malachi 4, Malachi describes more fully, describing John as the one who will lead the people to repent and to receive the forgiveness of sins, which is exactly what he does. We're told this message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In this way, John the Baptist is the Lord's prophet. In fact, Jesus declares that John is the last and the greatest of the prophets. Long before he was born, John was commissioned for service to the Lord. In fact, it wasn't even at Gabriel's announcement. That commissioning happened even before that, because we see it in Malachi. Zechariah's song is humbling because Zechariah doesn't argue with this plan. He submits to it. We've already talked about that. He acknowledges God's plan for John's life. So here, the Lord has blessed Zechariah with a child. But Zechariah seems to recognize that John is not his own, but belongs to God. And so in submitting to the Lord by naming his child John, Zechariah is submitting his child to the Lord to accomplish God's purposes. There's certainly a lesson for parents here, but I think the lessons extend far deeper than that. The Lord has been faithful to Zechariah, giving him a son, and in response, Zechariah is faithful to the Lord by raising up that very son for service to God. God's faithfulness causes Zechariah's faithfulness. Zechariah had a long wait. He and Elizabeth are in their advanced years. Like many husbands and wives, no doubt, they desired a child of their own. 
But as the years went by, that seemed impossible. They still continued with their faithfulness, though. They still continued to serve the Lord and obey him. And then finally, the Lord does bless them with a child. We see their overwhelming awe and joy at the events that take place. We see that when, when Gabriel announces what's going to take place, and we see the joy when Mary visits. They respond to God's faithfulness first with joy. But then they respond by their faithfulness. That faithfulness is displayed by Zechariah taking the very gift of the Lord, the newborn son, and turning in it, him right back over to the Lord for service to him. In the process of all of this, Zechariah has pointed out God's faithfulness to Israel. Israel had an even longer wait than Zechariah and Elizabeth. Just the time between the promises of John's arrival and his actual arrival here in Luke 1 is roughly 500 years. But so many of God's promises to Israel extend even beyond 500 years. Some of them go back a couple thousand years. The one spoken to Abraham that Zechariah speaks of here. The history of Israel, though, shows that God is always faithful. Sometimes it's not as immediate as we would like, but God never fails to do what he had said. Thomas Schreiner writes, Circumstances and troubles may mock us with the idea that God is not faithful, that his promises are not trustworthy, but the history of Israel is a lesson for us. Sometimes those circumstances are rough. They cause us to doubt. They cause us to waver in our faith. A few weeks ago, our church had two very special people die within 12 hours of each other. In recent months, we've had people lose children and grandchildren. Two of our own people had shoulder surgery within days of each other. And of course, many of us have endured health struggles that have gone on all year. Some of us have been incarcerated this year. And several have been involved in car accidents. More of us have been recipients of hurtful comments. And many of us find ourselves lost in the myriad of family conflicts that encapsulate our lives. I could go on. But the point is that from the physical to the spiritual, there are trials and there are tribulations that may call in to question God's faithfulness. But we don't need to question it. We should let the psalm of Zechariah offer hope that there is salvation. There is hope of a physical salvation, a rescue from the peril of the physical world where we no longer have to endure with the broken bodies, with the broken families, and the broken societies. And there is hope of a spiritual salvation, a rescue from that eternal condemnation. God is always faithful, and that's the one lesson we learn here. And so does his faithfulness inspire us to be faithful to him? Let's pray. Our Father God, we recount our lives, Lord, and 
Lord, we know that by them, as we look back at what has taken place, you are a God who is at work. But Father, we don't need to just look at our lives for that. Father, we can look into your word and see how you dealt with Israel and how you dealt with your people and see that you are always faithful, Lord. Father, what a privilege it is that we can be recipients of that faithfulness. Cause us to see it even more. Cause us to marvel at it. And in marveling at us, let it your holy fear permeate into our hearts and lives, Lord. Cause us to see you and, and call out to you. And thus, Lord, submit to you just as Zechariah has done, Lord. Father, there's testimony after testimony showing who you are. May that bring us comfort. May that bring us joy in seeing that you are at work continuously in an ongoing manner, Lord. And so, Father, we thank you for this time. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.